Cannabis Business Minds, we train and mentor professionals, entrepreneurs, and aspiring entrepreneurs on how to confidently find their place in the legal cannabis and hemp industries. Come on and join us at CannabisBusinessMinds.com. So if people are like, what's happening in the UK? What's happening in the EU? Um, A lot of people are way, they're very uneducated, right? And so when you think about where the UK is with CBD legalization or hemp legalization and then medical cannabis, it's, if you guys could just kind of start by giving an overview of what is legal, what's, what's not legal. Um, that would be great. Okay. Yeah. Do that, do that Mike. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, where we are in the UK now is, um, on the 1st of November in 2018. So not that long ago, the law changed to allow some doctors, and I'll come back to who, uh, to prescribe cannabis for medical purposes. It moved it to, um, from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 of the Misuse of Drugs Act, Misuse of Drugs Regulation. So uh, all that means is before the 1st of November, it was illegal, and the government said it had no medicinal value at all, and they just changed their mind. And I have to say they changed their mind as a result of the media campaign mm-hmm. that Hannah led. So... The- Law, the change in the law was really due to Hannah and, uh, and those around her, as it were, and therefore um, due to Alfie. But Hannah can come back and talk about Alfie a bit. Um, so the law changed the 1st of November. Um, it was very good, uh, quite liberal law change, surprisingly, because we can prescribe cannabis for any, any medical condition, anything. Uh, it's not restricted to pain or epilepsy or whatever. Um, it can be prescribed by any doctor on the, what's called the specialist register of the General Medical Council. That basically means a hospital specialist, a hospital consultant, and not, which I think was a mistake, not a general practitioner, a primary care physician. Mm-hmm. They can do it as a follow-up under the direction of the specialist. I think that's a pity because GPs would make very good prescribers because uh, a lot of the conditions that cannabis help are those that see People see GPs with like um, anxiety and pain, um, and yeah, a lot of a lot of those conditions, fibromyalgia, uh, sleep problems, are all um, GP issues, if you like. So I think GPs will be very good at prescribing, but they're not allowed to at the moment as primary prescribers. Um, that was all very good and very exciting, but then nothing much happened really for the whole of 2019. Because the National Health Service and 90% of the um, medical um, system in this country is the National Health Service, which is the system. Only about 10% of people use private medicine. So the National Health Service is not prescribing because of the ridiculously restrictive guidelines that are being produced by senior medical bodies, Mm. such as of physicians and a body called NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Um, they've been very restrictive. They don't fully understand cannabis. It's clear that they had people on the panels who didn't know what they were talking about. Um, and although those guidelines are not compulsory, um, they are only guidelines, but it's a brave doctor and a brave hospital that says to the doctor, yes, you can prescribe outside these guidelines. So effectively, the guidelines have stopped the health service prescribing. Uh, so, But you can now get a prescription in the private sector, and there's four private clinics now operating, and there's been, a, in round terms, about a 1,000 people who've had a medical cannabis prescription 
mainly since January this year, because it took a long time for those clinics to get approval from the government body that approves clinics. Um, they're now up and running, and they're running by telemedicine, which is good. So people in COVID, that was, a, was one of the positives of COVID. There aren't many positives of COVID, but that was one of them. Uh, we changed to telemedicine so people can be seen online now, and if they're suitable, they get a prescription. So that's where we are very briefly in the UK, and that's for um, medicinal cannabis. So that's um, usually uh, we'll see full extract CBD with either a little THC or, or any, there's no limit to the amount of THC you can put in the product if necessary. Most of the prescriptions are oils and flour, about 50-50. Um, just as a, one quick aside before I shut up is that um, CBD from hemp is legal in the UK and has been as a freely available in health food shops online, but I know it isn't in parts of the States and parts of Europe. Um, so uh, hemp-based CBD has been legal for a long time, but the, the manufacturers can't make any medical claims from it, which has caused a bit of problem and confusion. Of course, they can only make sort of loose, fairly meaningless claims that it helps wellness and such like. Mm, yeah. uh, that's an area that does need clarifying. So that's... Mm briefly or perhaps actually not that briefly is where we are in the UK. yeah I think the the one thing to mention as well is that it's there's a it's a very gray area with regard to the THC content because some people say that THC is completely illegal in any CBD products but actually if you look at high street CBDs a lot of them have under two percent THC because a lot of people think that that's legal but actually when you look into it the point two yeah point two percent but a lot of people say that it's completely illegal to have THC so that's the problem is as well at the moment in the UK is that it is very unclear yeah. what is actually legal and what's not legal um so that there the is definition is daft isn't it because actually the actual definition is the seed has to grow a plant with less than 0.2 percent THC but the legality of the product is as less than one milligram of THC per container. They don't specify the size of the container. Oh. How, how ridiculous is that? Um, so, I mean, it's crazy. It needs sorting out. But for mm. the novel foods regulation path, which is what Europe was doing and is doing and the UK is doing, is ridiculous. It's, to use that yeah. phrase, it's taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Yeah. It needed sorting and regulating, but not to the extent of possibly taking the products off the shelves that might happen to a novel food regulation. Yeah, that just seems really crazy that they're even thinking about classifying CBD as yeah. a product. Like it just yeah, it's just like crazy. It's just ridiculous. That's just yeah. a sort of legal thing. It may be under the legal definition of a part of the cannabis plant, but, I mean, common sense needs to prevail. I mean, yeah. WHO yeah. CBD is perfectly safe the EU is going backwards in the other wrong directions. Yeah. I don't on earth it's trying to do. It's trying to possibly big farmer is trying to step in and stop that industry from growing. Yeah. No evidence of that before somebody sues me. No, well, I just think <laughs> that it's like it's limiting access to yeah. to healthcare, right? And that is really just a travesty. And I think that, you know, Hannah, one of the main things when I started listening and reading about you and kind of the work that you've done. And I guess why I was like, what's up with, you know, cannabis, medical cannabis legalization is the fact that, and I want you to kind of tell your story in your own words, but the fact that 
you realize there is a really big problem with health in your family and you advocated and within such a short amount of time, we're talking 2018. And I think you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but within months, it seemed like you were able to push legislation. And I think that is so powerful and so inspiring. And I'm hoping that you can kind of just talk about that journey. Like, you know, what it was like and how did you do it? Well, yeah, I mean, it was a, a big whirlwind and you're absolutely right. We, my first TVP appearance was February, 2018. And by June, 2018, my son had an NHS prescription for medical cannabis, which was quick. <laughs> it's very quick. And um, I think a lot of the reason um, was that I had an amazing support team around me. Mike supported me all the way and also a, a lobby group called End Our Pain and End Our Pain are a lobby group on medical cannabis. Um, on prescription and they are very well connected within Westminster and within the media and so I would definitely never take all the credit (laughs) because I was very well supported and had um, amazing strategic uh, advice behind me but when it came to doing media when it came to doing interviews that was all me you know I've never been trained to do anything like that I just am a mother who was desperate to help my child to stay well and keep well and you know that I think shone through and that's why the media sort of took it to their hearts and actually the government were pushed into a corner and had to do something which you know and and, and there were other families as well that also you know took to the media to fight for this as well so I would never again take all the credit but I think that we you know we definitely led the charge Mike worked very closely with the home office for three months on a on a personal license application process which again had never been done before um so yeah I mean the way it started is um Alfie has very severe refractory epilepsy. That's my son. He's now eight. Um, He had his first cluster of seizures at eight months old, um, where we ended up in hospital for four months because he was seizing the whole time and nothing worked to help him. Um, The only thing that did work in the end was intravenous steroids. So he's got a basically an immune responsive epilepsy. So he, they, these, he doesn't have seizures every day, but when they flare up, they're very, very catastrophic. He has to go into hospital very quickly. He's a lot of the time at that time he was put into intensive care and just shoved full of drugs. And we would then take him home and have to rehabilitate him, get him to learn to swallow again, get him to learn to sit again. You know, this is when he was a baby and it, it was incredibly traumatizing. I mean, there's no other word for it. It was very, very difficult, but he only had clusters every eight months until he was four. So even though, it was very, very difficult to deal with. We did have good spaces of time between that he could recover and we could recover. But then at four years old, for some reason, and and again, epilepsy can be very much, you know, it's related to your immune system, the hormones and everything. He just started having seizures every three weeks. So instead of every eight months, which we thought was terrible, he was having, you know, 150 seizures every three weeks in these very aggressive clusters and then when he was turned five, it was every week. So by the age of five, he was in, I was taking him into A&E in the back of an ambulance, always in the middle of the night. His seizures always happen in the night. Um, so we'd be woken up at two, three in the morning with him screaming, having a huge tonic chronic seizure. We'd phone an ambulance, we'd get him into hospital and he might have had 10 tonic chronic seizures before we'd even got a, an IV into him. You know, it was very, very aggressive. And um, by that time, he was having 25 doses of methylprednisolone a month, which basically is very, very dangerous. His doctors were saying, you know, 
this has to be done because it's the only thing that stops his seizures, but they are very dangerous. They can cause organ failure, heart attacks, schizophrenia, um, with long-term use, brittle bones, you know, they're very, very dangerous drugs. And I was just terrified. So I thought, well, you know, there has to be something else. And, and I had gone on this journey of learning more about diet and learning more about holistic mm-hmm. treatments for people and, and health. And because, you know, I, I don't know, I just started to think that maybe actually nature could offer us something that pharmaceuticals couldn't. And it wasn't anything other than we weren't winning, you know, we weren't winning. It was just getting worse and worse and worse. So I thought, well, I need to follow my instincts. And actually, because he was my first child, as a mother, I never felt like I was good enough. I didn't know what was right for him. Doctors must know what's right for him because they're doctors. And actually, I started to realise that all they were doing, without any disrespect to them, because our local hospital was brilliant, they were just firefighting. They were just symptom controlling. There was no one saying to me, well, let's try and work out how we can stop these seizures. It was just, we're just going to treat what we see, mm-hmm. which was no life for us. I mean, I was completely traumatised. I had a, By then, I had a, three, a two, two and a half, three-year-old daughter as well. Um, you know, my partner was trying to work to keep a roof above our head and I was a full-time carer. You know, we, we get paid, I think it's £60 a week in the UK for being a full-time carer 24-7, which is nothing. You know, people can't, you can't live on that. So we were, you know, we were really struggling. Um, and I just started to do research. In 2016, when Alfie got really, really poorly, I just sort of thought, well, what do steroids do? They suppress your immune response. And I kept saying to doctors, you know, what, what's the action of steroids? And they said, well, we know they either suppress the immune system or sometimes they suppress the myelin in the brain. So I thought, well, there's two things it's doing. There's nothing else. It's not yeah. like an anti-epileptic where people actually don't really understand how they work even now on a metabolic level. But we know with steroids that how they work. So I I just started doing research of how to naturally treat epilepsy because I thought if I can just try and stop him having steroids because the other point is as well when he was coming home from hospital and the seizures had stopped I'd have three or four days where he would hit me and punch me and kick me and scream because he was having basically cold turkey off all these pharmaceuticals and his brain was very upset and it was just you know he had no quality of life I mean I've said it before you wouldn't keep a dog like that you know people would have said poor thing you know let's let's put it out of his misery but yet my poor child was living in that horrendous state and I've got videos of him where he's just staring into space off his tree on these drugs and then he would just become violent and aggressive and it you know it was no life for him so that's what spurred me on to fight for him because I just thought if he isn't here if something terrible does happen to him I need to know as his mom that I've done everything in my power to keep him well and to keep him having a happy life and if I haven't done that then I've not been a good enough mother so you know that's what spurred me on Um, and 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 cannabis just kept coming up you know I found that William O'Shaughnessy in I think it was the 1800s Mike that he first um noted the use of cannabis for epileptic seizures and I was like well that's interesting you know I only thought of cannabis as something that people do at college and you know have have a laugh and eat too many biscuits and you know I never thought of it as a medicine so when I first looked at it I thought well this isn't a medicine it can't be a medicine and then I realized actually it is a medicine and, and I joined lots of Facebook groups and social media and I did lots of research on you know, Google, look on YouTube, what talk, you know, watching doctors talking about the endocannabinoid system and about the entourage effect, about why whole plants better than isolates. And I just immersed myself in learning because I thought, well, then I can advocate for my child. And I went to see um, Alfie's neurologist about it. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd 
I think cannabis might work for him. And he said, well, there's an Epidiolex trial um, for GW Pharma, which is a CBD isolate. And he said, I can try and get you on that, which he did. Um, and they refused it because Alfie didn't fit the criteria. And then I said to him, well, you know, we've got to, we've got to you know, that I'm not accepting that. We've got to do something else. And, and then he was actually quite aggressive with me. And he said, if you talk to me about cannabis use in your child again, I'm going to report you to social services. And at this time, Alfie was in hospital every week. So he didn't like it. You know, he did not like it. Again, that stigma of, of cannabis yeah. is dangerous. And, and, you know, so I was like, okay, fine. So we found a different doctor that was actually very good in a different hospital. And we went there for a month and worked with him on trying to get Alfie off steroids and nothing worked. And I, I plucked the courage up and I said, you know, if I take him to Holland, which is where it is legal to be prescribed and, and use medical cannabis, would you help me and prescribe it? you know, when we get home and he said yes. And I couldn't believe it. He was really, really supportive. Um, so yeah, in 2017, after raising money and, and we started a petition and we started our um, campaign called Alfie's Hope. So we have social media, uh, mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter called Alfie's Hope. And um, we, we took him to Holland and we lived in Holland for five months. And, you know, it, our miracle happened there as far as I'm concerned, because his seizures in the end, they stopped. And it was... You know, we used a high a Bedracan product called Bedralite, high CBD, low THC product. Mm -hmm. um, it took time. It took about six weeks to get up to a dose where he started to become responsive to it. But yeah, I mean, it was, I, I have been criticised before. People say, well, it's not a miracle. Well, you know, it is a miracle when you're taking your child into hospital every week, yeah. watching him suffer. I mean, he was getting, the older he was getting, we were having to get, you know, five, six people to hold him down to put a needle into him while he was screaming. It was you know, it was incredibly traumatising for him and for us as his family. And we, you know, we were on the edge of falling apart, really. And, and it was a miracle because of that, because we were, at, you know, we were staying in our, we stayed in a holiday park in Holland and we were having some days together. We were going swimming, we were going to the beach. You know, he, he suddenly found his sister, whereas before he didn't even notice her and he started to play, mm -hmm. they started to play together. So, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. And And after five months, we we came home and fought fought the fight that I've told you about with End Our Pain and with Mike and we were just yeah I look back on it now and I just can't believe that it was me that did that really um but it just shows the power of a uh, the love of a mother as far as I'm concerned you know that's you know there's there's thousands of mums out there every day advocating for their children with epilepsy and I find them very inspirational and I just I'm just the same as them I'm the same as any other mother I just wanted my child to be okay and actually I just felt it was unfair and I you know I've been brought up as far as I'm concerned very well by my parents and to all you know life should be fair and people should be treated fairly and if there is a medicine that helps people I don't care if it's not a pharmaceutical it doesn't matter you know this is not about money this is not about who's the most powerful you know this is this is about people this is about chronic illness this is about children and their families and you know, that's what I've been fighting for for the last few years is to remind everyone in the UK, you know, that this is not about making money. And unfortunately, when you have commercial business involved in healthcare, this is the problem you have. And, you know, I have no, you know, Mike and I are the same. We have, you know, I have no problem with people making money at all because, you know, I know some people say, oh, well, you know, cannabis is God's plant and people shouldn't be making money. Well, that's, it's nonsense as far as I'm concerned because you ask for, you, you expect to have water clean water pumped into your home and you pay for it yeah. it's the same that if you want safe access to cannabis and you don't want to grow your own for your own personal use then you need to pay for it 
but it should be patient focused it should be about people and their families and then if you make money afterwards then you know good luck to you as far as I'm concerned but you know I think that's the problem yeah. we live in a we live in a capitalist society <laughs> people you know the, the need of people is forgotten sometimes unfortunately yeah. And I think just being, you know, thinking about the U.S. pharmaceutical landscape versus the U.K. and the, even the EU pharmaceutical landscape, I think it's naive of me to think, well, you know, a lot of it's public funding, but despite it being public funding, there's still so much commercial interest behind that, right? There's still the same kind of pharmaceutical companies pushing their patented drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing where we have to remember in the U.K. that we have a public health service. Mm-hmm. But as you say, they have to make, they have to have contracts, they have to buy, they buy drugs, you know, they, they are commercial and they are <coughs> in that sense, you know, they're never, they're not free of that. And, you know, doctors training, for example, a lot of doctors training is funded by pharmaceutical companies that they're lot in their last year because, you know, and nurses training, all that sort of stuff. And, and then how, that's what I get concerned about is how can that then be ethical, you know, because, they have they have a vested interest so you know I think that's the problem and and at the moment what we're seeing in in the cut in the UK is that doctors won't prescribe because as Mike said of these very restrictive guidelines and there is also an organization called the BPNA which is the British Pediatric Neurology Association which is a society for pediatric neurologists and that their guidance is just disgraceful as far as I'm concerned they say that um children have to have tried every anti-epileptic available and the ketogenic diet and not be eligible for surgery before they have a medical cannabis Mm. prescription which I think is barbaric so you'd rather cut my child's head open than give him a plant-based medicine I mean it it just shows and 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 but that lobby is coming from somewhere and the problem is is that these people are all you know I think that's the again sort of moving away from cannabis a little bit that's the fundamental problem is doctors are trained how to prescribe pharmaceuticals Mm -hmm. they're not trained in how diet affects your body they're not trained in the endocannabinoid system they're not trained in how exercise can help you to recover from depression, for example, is all about this is your symptom and this is your pharmaceutical for it. And I think, you know, with moving the cannabis aside a little bit, that's the fundamental problem with why doctors struggle with cannabis as a, as a medicine, because it's not a pharmaceutical and that's all they've ever known. (laughs) And it just completely frightens them. And it's right at, I mean, it's almost at the very beginning of their journey, right? They're still in medical school. They've never been taught about the endocannabinoid system. They're, you know, interns, like there's just funding sources from pharmaceuticals. So that's a really like big root problem. I'm curious, the other root problem that I see is that, and I'm curious what, you know, you kind of alluded to it a little bit about your relationship with your, with the doctors, with Alfie, but Uh, Even in growing up in the U.S., my relationship with doctors has never been, I've never felt really trusted. I've never felt like I could really say anything. My mom had cancer. I brought up CBD. Again, nothing kind of worked. So it's also this interesting paradigm because you just think about it like, okay, so that's the doctors, but what about the people? Like, is it, can you try to educate people then to demand differently if the system... Yeah, this has been an interesting... Yeah. This has been an interesting movement, the cannabis movement across the world, because it's largely um, lay, public, patient-driven um, yeah. by the medical profession. I think that's part of the reluctance of it. Some members of the medical profession don't like being told what to do and how to do it. 
but the patient clearly knows more than they do. And I think that is an issue. I mean, sensible, intelligent doctors will mm-hmm. learn from that. I've learned a lot from, from Hannah, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think doctors need to embrace that. It's a different sort of medicine. The people coming in front of them generally know more than they do, and they should learn from that experience. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting field of medicine, but have a wide range of um, uh, symptoms that can be helped by cannabis. Doctors should embrace this and learn about it and really be excited about it. They were treating behind their their previous pharmaceutical paradigms, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It's a great shame. Well, I I agree with you, and I think that's the problem. Drew and I, when we came, my partner Drew, when we came back from Holland and we went to speak to our doctor, and, you know, that's how Mike got involved because, unfortunately, our doctor was blocked from prescribing through his hospital trust, even though he was supportive. But we spoke to some of the doctors there, and Drew said, I can't believe you're not excited about this. If if it was anything else and we'd gone to another country and used a pharmaceutical that had stopped our child from having hundreds of seizures every month, you'd be like oh my god this is amazing what is it but because it's cannabis they don't want to know because it's got this horrendous stigma about it still and I think because there is this pharmaceutical lobby that you know it's not a pharmaceutical so therefore it's not safe but what I would say and it's a question I've been asked before well I was asked the other day by someone who's interviewing me well isn't doesn't your child get stoned no he doesn't get stoned what he does get stoned on is steroids and yeah. phenobarbital and all the other emergency and midazolam and all the other horrible emergency medicines they used to give him when he had lots and lots of seizures he gets really stoned on those and that's what I don't understand you know it's okay to shove all that stuff into him which is not safe for children yeah. that we don't know if it's safe for children and I'm not blaming the doctors because they have no other thing to use they have not, you know they have a, they have nothing to use other than those things yeah. but but what is the mentality when we are giving children these drugs and, and we're not batting an eyelid, but yet we're batting an eyelid about cannabis. It, that, that's the problem. There's a huge problem with this sort of mentality of it. And I think the other thing as well for us in the UK, and again, I don't, I'm not sure how it is in America, is that I think doctors are seen as like gods. You know, you mustn't question the doctor. The doctor knows best. And as far as I'm concerned, the doctor is a professional, like any other one of us, and they get things wrong and they get their judgment wrong and they get tired and they make bad decisions. And that's okay. That's fine. I'd rather my doctor say to me, and, and you know, we've never had that. And Drew and I again always said that. Why doesn't a doctor just sometimes say, do you know what? I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that I was wrong. I made a mistake yeah. there. Why can't they, why don't they have the confidence or why aren't they allowed in their professionalism to do that? Because you'd have a lot more respect. And I, I think that's what the problem has happened in the UK is that a lot of parents' relationships with their doctors have broken down because they don't feel listened to. They yeah. don't feel valid. I mean, I felt like that when Alfie was first in hospital, I felt like I wasn't his mother anymore. You know, they just took him off. They pumped him full of all these drugs and I wasn't con- I wasn't consulted about how I felt about it what I thought whether I thought it was right and I understand it, it was an emergency but you can't you know I should be respected as his mother uh, and what I think should be listened to and that doesn't happen and I think that's again as Mike said this has become a patient-led movement because people are fed up with being ignored yeah. they want to just you know do what they see for their children and a lot of these families that are using private prescriptions now their children have stopped having seizures. They're not going to hospital anymore. And yet they still can't get prescriptions from their doctors in the NHS because the NHS won't allow it. And it's, it's mental because yeah. actually they're helping their children to be well. <laughs> it's just mad. 
Well, and also it's been set precedent, right? Like that's the thing is like, I feel like you set precedent with getting the medical license for Alfie to an extent. Now there's all these additional things of like, you know, doctors not being able to prescribe, but what, I mean, I'm, you guys both obviously work together and you're working on, and I think a lot of kind of changing this perception, but like, what are some active solutions that, that we can together employ or like, is it, is it getting, multiple patients together and figuring out exactly where to lobby and what our, our talking points are, because it's quite frustrating, right? Like there's so many, I think the system, there's so many weak points of why it's not allowing people to get access to medicine. What have you been able to kind of find as solutions to try to at least work towards that problem? I think it's down to education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's education of doctors because there are, yeah, we do down all the medical profession. There is a proportion of doctors, a tiny proportion, but a proportion who are very pro this and want to prescribe it, but they're being stopped from doing so. And I think, uh, first of all, we need to educate more doctors so they know and understand the endocannabinoid system and the phytocannabinoids and all the pros and cons. It's not suitable for everybody. Uh, so let's educate. And there are education platforms now in the UK yeah. uh, where people, doctors can learn about it. Um, that's one aspect. So if you empower the doctor to make the case to their higher authorities, and that's another mistake the UK government made, is they require a doctor not to, unlike ordinary medicine, the doctor can just prescribe it if he thinks it's right, he or she thinks it's right for their patient. In the UK at the moment, the doctor who makes that decision for cannabis then has to get it approved by the hospital hierarchy, the medical director or the drug and therapeutics committee or something, and they're the people who will actually then say, oh, no, I can't go against the guidelines. But if that doctor is empowered and knows and can make the case, then one of these days, one of those approvals will come along. That's one aspect. The other aspect is educate the public and educate the patients so they can go to the doctor and say, look, this is the evidence I've got. This this will help my child or help me with pain or whatever it is, um, and I want this, and then be stroppy. I, I'm all for a sort of patient revolution, frankly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To say, yeah. I'm going to sit here till you, till you prescribe it, and I'm not having this nonsense. Um, yeah. So I think we need to educate the patients, and that's easily done. And the other way to do that is, sadly, I'm not a great favour of the private sector, but there are now a 1,000 people in the private sector who've got cannabis, who it's <laughs> helping, about 85% are being helped by that, then they can go to their doctor, not only with the actual academic evidence, but also with their own personal evidence, say, yeah. I've tried this for three months. It's helped my symptoms, helped my child's problems. Now you've got to prescribe it. Mm. That's very powerful because the, yeah. the doctor says no. They either got to say, they've got to give a reason. And that either they disbelieve the patient, mm-hmm. uh, isn't good for their relationship, with them, yeah. or... Uh, they say, well, I'm okay, but I'm stopped from doing it. And then you know where the package is, then you can attack the package. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to educate doctors on one side and the patients and the public on the other side. That's what Hannah and I are trying to do. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly what's happening at the moment is the families that have prescribed privately um, whose children's seizures are massively reduced, they're going to their doctors and they're basically saying, we're not allowed to prescribe. Not that we can't or we don't want to, we're not allowed to. And that's that's a really worrying because why was why was the law changed to allow access if it's not allowed? You know, we need we need to get to the bottom of what the problem is here. 
Um, I've recently um, supported a family who have set up a support group called MedCan Support for parents because that's that's the one thing that he wanted to do is educate parents because actually that's like Mike said we need people to know what they're talking about and to go in to see their doctors and actually dumbfound them with knowledge because <laughs> a lot of the time the doctors say oh well, you can't have that and then because people don't understand what they're talking about they let they allow them to be you know told no and actually if we can empower these parents to actually feel really confident and understand what they're talking about then they're going to be a real problem for these doctors which is what we want we want to make these people feel so uncomfortable that they and I feel sorry for the doctors actually because some of them are really good like Mike says some of them are really good but they just don't have a backbone a lot of them they're worried about their careers they're worried about upsetting you know the NHS I've heard it before it can, I think it's quite a bullying place and you have to sort of fit in and you have to do what everyone says and if you don't as a doctor then you're a maverick and all oh, you know we'll get rid of you so I, I do feel sorry for them in that sense that they just want a quiet life but actually they need to remember yeah. why they became a doctor why did you become a doctor to help people first do no harm and I think that's being forgotten they're just you know sitting on their nice salaries and just yeah. wanting to like have an easy life and that is not why you become a doctor especially for children with severe epilepsy who's who could die you know the the fact is is they can die from seizures and it can the the way it affects families is just awful and if there's anything that can work for these children especially when it's being proven then it should be available absolutely are you spending so talk talk to to us a little bit about kind of now we're in 2020 right so 2019 was a little bit of a quiet year legislation um, you've been able to have access for Alfie. It seems like your your both of your main focus is really patient advocacy and patient education. Uh, where are you focusing? I mean, because you know epilepsy is such a big big area to focus on. Are you just focusing on this, or talk to us uh, a little bit about what's going on now? I think um, we've got several avenues that we're we're trying to do. We, we work together on something called Maple Tree Consultancy. Mm-hmm. has several um, angles of attack, I suppose you could say. One is the education angle. Mm-hmm. The other one is to get a, a better choice of supply, uh, a supply in the country that's reliable. Uh, we have now a reasonable number of foreign import uh, cannabis products, which are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, they meet the basic standards in order to allow them to come to the country, EU GMP standard, it's called, good manufacturing practice. So there's nothing wrong with those, but... We, I think we do need um, a UK industry. So we've got a, we don't have the problems of supply chain. We've had real issues with supply chain. Okay, maybe to COVID, uh, but a product, for example, from Israel uh, was a very good product. Uh, it was then stopped from coming in, and they couldn't get it in. We've had delays with Australian products and such like. So, not necessarily the fault of the companies that make it, and it may be a temporary issue. But it really has highlighted the fact we need a UK. Um, high THC cannabis industry and that's mm-hmm. another aspect of what we're lobbying for yeah. get that there's some farmers in the UK who want that the cultivation license so we can get our own industry um, then we need the better in, the infrastructure we've been working with developing clinics um, there's something called the life group uh, we've got a magazine now called cannabis health mm-hmm. that is really good that we're part of um, that's an excellent magazine. And I think if we get a mainstream magazine on the shelves or online uh, in our new mainstream news agents, make cannabis normal, really. That's what we want. We don't want stoner magazines. 
you know, and I'm keeping off the recreational debate. I think that's a perfectly valid debate, but it's a different debate. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Physical debate, which is fine. We're looking at medical cannabis. We want to make that normal. You know, people don't recoil when you say, I've taken an aspirin for my headache this morning, or I'm on steroids or something, or I'm on a blood pressure pill. We want people to just talk about cannabis as if it's a normal medicine. So normalizing it, I think, is perhaps to summarize what we're trying to do. And that's mm-hmm. uh, things like this. Uh, we do quite a lot of media work, articles in various magazines, in mainstream press, on radio, on television, and the magazine Cannabis Health, as I've said. All that helps, I think, to get it more normalised. And the more normal it is, the less reluctance, I think, we'll get from the medical profession to prescribe it. The, that stigma that's holding many doctors back will begin to fade. After all, you know, 85% plus of the public are now for medical cannabis, and mm-hmm. it Actually, another survey that 85% of doctors were for medical cannabis. Well, if they, were, if they say that on paper, are you for it? Yes. Then for heaven's sake, they need to get off their backsides, yeah. do what they think is right for the patient and prescribe it. So I think that's basically what we're trying to do is increase awareness, make it normal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge task. I think about just yeah. trying to... Really, you are rewiring the the mental pattern of a lot of people of their stigma, right? And so yeah. that such a tactical approach. I think that you know what is nice is that other countries have kind of pushed you know towards legalization. We hear more stories, but at the end of the day, I think that oftentimes it comes to those personal stories that people like they, yeah. they either have experienced it or they knew somebody and cannabis has helped that really changes it or just that, you know, you think about marketing and it's like, it takes like what, 12 touch points to get somebody to become a customer. Like, and that's from a commercial standpoint. And that's something that they're probably a little bit interested in. And I almost imagine that this campaign is the same. Like it's an awareness, it's interest, it's discovery, right? So it's something that probably what you're working on is that you're tackling it in so many different ways that, you know, Again, this cannabis is not a, a sprint; it's a marathon. And hopefully, what are you? I guess exactly. you know. Are you hoping that within the next year or two, like, how do you? I guess that's the big question: is like, how do you measure this? Right? Like, how do you measure awareness to mm. interest? Right? Like that is. I, I never thought about it on such a bigger scale. I think. Well, the main ultimate measure is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a sound of grandiose thing, but what we're working towards actually is anyone with a medical condition that would benefit from cannabis can get it free of charge on the National Health Service or if they want through the private sector. Uh, that's the measure. The measure is the number of prescriptions written on the National Health Service. And that number at the moment is two. <laughs> okay. They were both free law change. So, you know, we all have done a great job by increasing the number by 100% if we get four people on. Yeah. Uh, and we've got to put that in the context of about 1.3 million people in the UK use cannabis every day for medical purposes, not recreational. So, you know, having we were very pleased when we got to about a thousand prescribed. Yeah, a thousand in the context of 1.3 million. Yeah, way to go. That's a metric we can use. Is how many prescriptions have been written? Um, that's our ultimate metric. The other thing's important: how many people I know and understand cannabis and such. Yeah. Measuring that is a you know, requires market research in its own right, yeah. uh, which somebody else can do. 
<laughs> by the number of prescriptions on the National Health Service. That's a pretty good one. And I also think, you know, with your magazine, I mean, that's how I got connected with both of you, you know, by talking with Paul. Yeah. I mean, even number of subscribers, where it's getting placed, you get that thing placed in a huge supermarket yeah. or something, and then you can yeah. see how many people... Exactly, are. that's another way of doing it, yeah. If we get 10,000 and then 20,000 subscribers or readers online, you know, that's another marker. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of those markers, the number of magazine articles, the number of radio broadcasts, yeah. um, you know, the number of sales. Of CBD products, and we shouldn't forget the, the medical value of the legal CBD. That's another thing yeah. working on is to get good quality CBD products because they have a medical value. Oh yeah, There's a lot of metrics we can measure to see how successful we are. Absolutely, it's a big it's a big task. Yeah, well Not that, that many working on it that leads us kind of to yeah. I'd love for you both to answer this. Is you know that is a big task, right? And so yeah. I always kind of have this like speed round um, at the end of the podcast. And the first question is like, what is your why? Like, what motivates you every day doing this? Um, for me, it's the injustice of people not getting what is a perfectly reasonable, not totally safe but a, a, a something that's a good medicine for people who otherwise can't have any medicine for those symptoms. Mm-hmm. I didn't really start this in order to turn myself into a sort of campaigner and media lobbyist. <laughs> I just thought, well, this is a sensible medicine. I think it will be embraced by the medical profession. And it made me wake up to the fact that most of my colleagues in the medical profession are um, um, politely idiotic. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so what drives me is the injustice of people who need it not being able to get it through the ignorance and stupidity of first the government, but now more recently the medical profession. Yeah, I've got to change the ignorance and stupidity of the medical profession, then I can retire. Yes. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, there's well, one reason is Alfie. Um, you know, he has inspired me to make this change and to, to, to do this every day it's turned something that for me is full of grief and pain into something positive so if whatever happens to Alfie if his legacy is that he got me off my backside and he helped me to help others then that's really special for me and it's what keeps me going and I need it I need to do that because otherwise I face the grief of worrying about my child and I don't want to do that so I do this because it helps me to focus on something that's really important to me and secondly I'm you know for me I know what it's like to live in that trauma in that grief in that worrying about money, not having a social worker, not having any respite, not having any services, which is basically the reality of many, many thousands of people in the UK at the moment with disabled family members. And that's what drives me very similar to Mike is the injustice of that. You know, we don't choose to have children with disabilities. I didn't choose to do that. It happened to me and it happened to my family and I should be taken care of Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned by the government. And I haven't been, you know, we haven't been looked after. We haven't been listened to by our doctors. We haven't, we didn't even have a social worker to support us until a year ago, you know, and that is disgraceful. And so for me, it's a wider thing. It's about access to medical cannabis because it's, it's the right thing for many chronically ill children and adults, but it's also about the social injustice that families with disabilities within that like children or young adults or even older adults in their families face on every single day that I you know will 
I continue to lobby on that as well. And I talk about it in my interviews because I think it's really, really important that we remember how vulnerable these families are with children who are sick. And we as a good society should be taking care of them. And that's simply not happening at the moment. Yeah. So it drives me every day to do this because if, if I can help make a difference in one person's family, then, you know, that's really, really special for me. Yeah. I mean, it's hope, right? I think that when you are feeling that desperate and you don't feel like there's any solution and knowing that you can help somebody through that or navigate that in a way, I mean, it just completely changes perspective and it allows that kind of, it allows a solution to some of this stuff. And I think that's, that's huge. You both have excellent missions. Like I'm just in awe, seriously. I have one technical question and then I'll leave it up to you guys to share anything else that you want. You know, I keep thinking about the, um, the prescriptions, right. And like the, basically who's writing the rules to say, Oh, well, you can't do this. Right. Like to the BPNA or to, um, I guess even to the doctors, like what, where have you figured out, like, what's the, where that route is of like, if you could change those rules, then everything in the end would theoretically work. But that obviously there's a lot of power behind that, but where is that lie? I I think the main blockage is the guidelines. The most by nice. Mm. They basically said it wrapped up a lot in government speak. Uh, but basically said you can't prescribe cannabis because not enough evidence for its efficacy, which mm. is nonsense. They looked at it yeah. from a very narrow angle of double-blind seed control. They looked at it from the pharmaceutical model rather mm. than the plant. Mm. So you can say if we can persuade NICE to change their mind, certainly, or at least adjust and, uh, and make those guidelines a little less definite and say, well, we think there's value to this, but we do need more evidence. Mm-hmm. But let's prescribe and, and learn as we go along. Uh, and that would be hugely helpful. Then the, the hospitals, the one to prescribe, wouldn't read that block from the hospital hierarchy. You say, okay. well, going against the NICE guidance, someone might sue us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah. think freeing up the guidelines will be a major, major achievement. Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. I think for me, um, until it is accepted that cannabis is exceptional and isn't a single compound pharmaceutical, then we're not going to move forward. Because as Mike said, mm-hmm. all the guidance has been created based on the fact that there's not enough randomised control trials in cannabis. Well, there isn't because of prohibition, but there's also not because it's not a single compound pharmaceutical. It's a plant made up of hundreds of compounds. It needs to be done on observational data. It needs to be done on anecdote. It, you know, we know there's millions of people in the in the whole world using cannabis for lots of different illnesses and we know it's working and that should be you know that that evidence is important and there's some really good evidence throughout the world but nice have just ignored it because it's not pharmaceutical evidence and i think that's the big problem in the uk that mindset needs to be changed and that's what you know we were also lobbying for an office of medical cannabis similar to what there is in the netherlands where they do accept the exceptionality of cannabis it's not a pharmaceutical so they created a um a, you know an office of medical cannabis that deals with the sale and purchase of flour you know to, to pharmacies who make the oils and all that sort of stuff you know that needs to happen because if we rec- if we do that and it's separate then they can also collect all the evidence they you know they can create 
the, the, the framework that is needed for legal access. But at the moment, we're trying, you know, the government are trying to shoehorn cannabis into a pharmaceutical model and it's not going to work. And people don't want it. And actually, my fear is if this doesn't happen soon, that people are just forced to the black market. Because if we have this, if we have this, um, you know, production of, of isolate compound medicines from pharmaceutical companies, people don't want them. People will use whole plant cannabis still because it's more effective. Mm-hmm. So they'll either go private or they'll go to a, a black market oil maker who says, I make the same as Bedrolite and, you know, we don't know what's in it. We don't know yeah. if there's any pesticides. It actually could make children's seizures worse, yeah. you know, so... And then that's something we've been saying to the government, you know, wake up and think about actually what you're doing is forcing vulnerable people into something even more vulnerable. And, you know, lastly, the one thing that I do notice is MPs have no clue about cannabis either. I actually wrote to quite a lot of them uh, on the two year anniversary of Alfie's license, you know, reminding them that Alfie had his license two years ago and that no one has any prescriptions still. And I got one reply saying that cannabis is scientifically proven to cause mental and physical harm and destroy communities. So if we've got a, a reply like that from a senior MP in the conser- current Conservative government, then what hope have we got? <laughs> because yeah, they, those, yeah. those people are creating the narrative. Yeah. So that's, that's a big problem as well. We need to be educating members of parliament. There's some, there's some brilliant members of parliament that have been lobbying for this for the last few years and we're very very grateful to them but I'm afraid there's some that really are not in touch with reality yeah. and I'm, I'm afraid that's the problem as well when you've got the the people at the top peddling misinformation then you're really oh, in trouble <laughs> so. yeah, yeah in the U.S. there was uh, a lobbying like it was the National Cannabis Industry Association and all the members we would go once a year and lobby the federal government and it was such a great experience. I mean, there was, I think when I went in 2015, like more than like 300 or 400 people, but having those discussions with those, you know, Senate and, and kind of legislator, they were more or less kind of okay with it, but they just knew that they're constituents. So it was weird to hear like the back end, like, well, you know, you could, they were so quiet. They weren't saying like, this is like devil's lettuce or anything like that. But you could tell that they knew their constituents were not going to go for it and therefore they weren't going to push it. So it's interesting to hear that that doesn't even seem like it's the case in the UK. The UK, it's like, this is really scientifically wrong. Yeah, which is nonsense. I'd like to see that report (laughs) because I don't believe it exists. Um, You know, and I agree. I think education of MPs is really important. I've I've talked to Mike about that. Could could we put an event on where we ask MPs to come and listen to us talk about about this but unfortunately you can't force them to come and and no. probably a lot of them have it in their mind that they've made a decision of that is bad and they don't want to know anything else so it's very hard yeah um one other question and i'll let you guys just give me your kind of i would love to people are going to want to find you all that kind of stuff but how big is your community right like how big is like the uk group of advocates lobbyists like you know 1.3 million people that are medical users, like how many advocates and kind of people do you have in your support system that are pushing towards this? Uh, there's not many, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. There are two or three organizations. There's an organization pushing the hemp-based CBD industry, which is a slightly different 
yeah. entity. We run, both of us run the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society. Mm-hmm. So have uh, mainly, but not exclusively, doctor members in that. So there's about 80 doctors on that. And we know there's something like 30 doctors prescribing at the moment in the UK. Uh, so there's that group. Um, there's a couple of other lobby groups. They're a little bit disparate because mm-hmm. sometimes with some of these groups, they confuse um, the recreational debate with the medical debate. Yeah. Um, and I totally understand that and, and sympathise with it, but that's not our debate. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate that if you get some groups pushing for the general legalisation of cannabis, it confuses and muddies the debate about getting the medical cannabis mm-hmm. more acceptable to the to the establishment, I suppose you yeah. I think that's yeah. unfortunate. I think, yeah. I think that's the biggest fear of, of uh, many MPs, actually, is that the medical cannabis is a route to recreational use, which many, many MPs don't want. Mm. And I think that's, like as Mike said, it's why it's so important to be very clear on our narrative is that this is about the medical use of cannabis. This is about safe, regulated use. Yeah. We're, we're not going to start swaying into, you know, people growing their own or anything like that. You know, as Mike said, it, it, it may be a valid thing for adults with pain, for example, if they want to grow their own plants yeah. in their garden. But it's not our fight. Um, and, that, you know, there are advocates around that. Um, I mean, people have been advocating for the change of uh, medical cannabis scheduling for the last 20, 30 years in the UK. And we just we just sort of came along and made it happen, which was great, really. And we're very lucky in that sense. So, but I think, you know, there's a lot of people spend a lot of time talking to each other about all the things they need to do. And then there's no action. And yes. um, and there's a lot of falling out as well, unfortunately. And um, the guy that runs End Our Pain said to me, what governments love best is campaigns that fall out. And it's so true. They spend so much time squabbling with each other <laughs> that they don't actually get anything done. Yeah. And that's why Mike and I spend most of the time working together and doing what we do together because we get on really well and we don't as yet have, we haven't had a squabble. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to carry on like that because, it, you know, it, it's just easier because a lot, that's the, fight, the problem you find with some of these larger groups. There's too many cooks. They all yeah. get involved. They all want to be in charge, and it's just all yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we just sort of do. We get on, do our thing, focus on what we we can do to help, and let other people do the same. And then you know, hopefully, I always feel if we all push from different directions in our own yeah. way, that we'll get there in the yeah. end. It doesn't matter who who does it. It just matters that we do it. And that we'll it's get getting there. done. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Anything else that you want to share with our listeners? How, how can they find you? But anything else that you wanted to kind of say on Cannabis Business Minds? Um, they can find us through Maple Tree. Maple Tree? Is it? Maple Tree Consultants. Maple Tree Consultants. Uk. Okay. okay. They can find us through that. Um, yeah. Anything else to say? I think we've covered it, things really. I think we have quite the other lobbying area is to get GPs to prescribe because I think if it was taken away from the hospital hierarchy consultants, yeah. I think we'd probably get further because I think there's a lot of GPs attuned to this. Yeah. They have their own battles to get it funded, I realise that, but at least there'll be another um, another front opened up from the GP funding and the hospital coming together. So that's the only thing we haven't really chatted about too much is to get GPs to prescribe mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I think if that there's happens... There's a GP society later. formed now by a doctor called Dr. Leon Barron and he's... Uh, He's very good, and uh, we'd like to work with him as well. We are working with him as well to get the GPs to prescribe. That's the only other extra thing that I wanted to add. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. GP should be prescribing. Um, we get to see Alfie's consultant once a year. I mean, it's just nonsense that a, a hospital consultant should prescribe cannabis because if you do prescribe medical cannabis, you need to be doing um, a follow-up after four monthly. and a, a monthly yeah. for the first few months. There's just no way that a hospital consultant hospital can do that. Consultants haven't got the time um, for that. No, and and so the more and more I think about the way the when the law was changed and the way it has been changed, I felt it was done to keep us quiet, not for access because mm. they've made it so it's never going to happen and that's what we you know everyday lobby against is that you know if you're going to do this do it right you know don't do it because it makes you look good but actually you're not helping anyone yeah. that's what gov- governments seem to be very good at doing that you know trying to make themselves look good but actually they're not helping anyone so we need to you know we will continue to do all we can to make this better for, for people Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this, leave us a five-star review. Make sure that you share this episode on your social media and tag us in the Instagram stories. You can find us wherever you go on social media. Just look up Cannabis Business Minds. Have an idea for the show or something that you want to talk about? Shoot us an email at podcast at cannabisbusinessminds.com.